All right, so I'm needing uh, audience participation to start with. I'm not going to have anybody come up here and do any tricks or anything like that today. Uh, maybe next week. Uh, has anybody here ever met anyone famous? And you'd like to share? All right. You, I saw your hand first. That's okay. I'll repeat it so those at home can't, they can hear. Lou Ferrigno, the Hulk. You met the Hulk. That's pretty awesome, which is a perfect segue to my next question. What did you feel like when you met? Felt tiny. You felt small. All right, that's good. All right, David? Marie Osmond. Okay, all right. I'm not going to ask you how you felt because your wife's sitting next to you. I don't want to cause it. No, I'm joking. Didn't know. Okay, okay. How did you feel when you met Marie Osmond? She was tiny. Okay. All right. A little bit different perspective. All right. One, one more. Anybody else? Anybody? All right. Macho Man Randy Savage. Macho Man Randy Savage. Okay. All right. That's a blast from my childhood. All right. All right. How, how, did, how did you feel when you met Macho Man? Huh? You felt it was cool. All right. All right. Well, okay. Terry's flagging me down. Terry, I'll let you go. One more. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you went to high school with Steve Spurrier and caught a few passes. So you, you knew him. There you go. There you go. You, hey, you're one of the reasons he became what he became, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we've got different reactions, different famous people. Uh, Lou Frigno, I couldn't have picked a better one. That's great. So you feel, I mean, who wouldn't feel small in the presence of Lou Frigno? But, uh, you know, all of us, uh, I, I shared with you, I met uh, Bart Starr and the McAllisters and was, was just as nervous as you could be. And I actually met Billy Graham uh, years in 2005. We got to go hear him preach after Katrina, and, and I got to meet him briefly afterwards. Um, and I felt, you know, I felt pretty small in his presence, honestly. Um, if you've ever met someone famous, you, you know, you, there's, even though they're, they're people like everybody else, you, you probably were nervous, you know, you didn't know what to expect, you know, uh, and, and if you knew, I remember when we were going to, when I knew I was going to get to hear Billy Graham preach, I remember leading up to that, I, I was, I was nervous and excited and all of these things, you know, I wanted to be prepared, I wanted to, uh, to be ready to receive whatever it was, it was a great message, um, and, and so when, when we meet people that, that are famous, we go through different emotions, right? I mean, there are different things, important people in life. And, and so I just wonder, I wonder if we have anywhere near that sense of awe when we prepare to meet God. Because, you know, every Sunday we come to this building um, and we gather together and Talking about, you know, famous people and what they have or haven't done, you know, important people. There, there's no one, no being more important than God. And, and I think sometimes we just, we come in here and or we go to our time alone with him every day and it's routine. And so it begs the question, what should we do if we react the way we do? And it's okay to react goofy and silly when you meet famous people. I, I've been there. But if we act the way we do with them, you know, what do we need to do to prepare to meet God? Every Sunday, as we worship corporately, but then every day, as I spend time alone with God. First of all, am I doing that? Are we doing that? And second, what am I doing to prepare for that? 
Am I doing it to check it off my list, or am I actually preparing? And that's what today is all about. When we look at our passage today, as we continue in this series through the life of Moses, we see an ordinary guy that God used in extraordinary ways. And I'll bring back a quote from Dwight L. Moody that I've I've read a couple of times, but not in a few weeks, uh, where he says, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years... Uh, learning he was a nobody, and his final 40 years learning what God could do with a nobody. Uh, Moses had met with God, and God had taken him and had, had turned him into a leader and had changed him and was in the process of him using him. And we're in the last 40 years of his life where God is using him. And my prayer in this series all along is that we would see Moses and be able to relate to a man who lived in a world with struggles just like you and I do, who faced problems similar to what we face, who had strengths. He also had weaknesses, and he faced challenges. And sometimes he responded well to those challenges. Many times he didn't. Um, And in some dramatic ways, he responded poorly. But in the end, he made himself available and was used by God, by God's hands for his purposes, for his glory. And that's the goal for all of us, is that we are available and allow God to use us for his purposes in his perfect timing. So we put it this way. We are studying this series. We're studying the life of Moses to experience God's spiritual principles, his purpose for our life, uh, you know, his growth spiritually, what he wants to produce in and through us, his spiritual principles so that we can live a spiritual life in Christ. We want to live for him. We want to live for his glory. We want to live his, out his plan for his kingdom and his way. Now, if you look where we, where we ended last week, I'm just going to quickly uh, summarize chapter 17 and, and 18, the last part of 17 and 18, and then we're going to move into chapter 19 today. Just, just quickly, in chapter 17, we see the Amalekites attack. And this is the famous story where as long as Moses has his hands up, the Israelites are winning. When, they put, when he puts his hands down, they lose. Uh, Moses, Aaron, and Hur go up on a hill, and he does that. As long as his hands are lifted, uh, the, the army's winning. And so by the end, Aaron and Hur end up holding his, his arms up for him, and the, the Israelites have victory in this battle. They defeat the Amalekites. And so Moses then builds an altar. And, it, and he calls it, the Lord is my banner. And so that's 17. Moving into chapter 18, we have the instance where Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, visits. He brings Moses' wife, his two sons, and he finds Moses spending all of his time dealing with issues, settling issues between the Israelites. And you think, you know, two million people, there's a lot of issues to be settled. And Moses is dealing with all of them himself. And so Jethro says, Moses, you need to appoint certain leaders over different areas and let them handle the smaller cases so that they can just bring you the larger issues to deal with. So he delegates and he ends up electing those people to do that. He does what his father-in-law says. And then we move into chapter 19. Israel, at this time, of course, they're out of bondage. Uh, They've been moving through the wilderness. And three months later, they finally arrive at Mount Sinai, 
We talked last week about the challenges that they face, trusting God and, and uh, God providing for their needs and the continued challenge of them having faith, the nation of Israel having faith in God and trusting in his provisions. Well, they finally arrive at Mount Sinai. And this is significant because if you look back at chapter 3 and verse 12, you see God tell Moses. And Moses is saying, how will they know uh, that you've sent me? How will they believe in me when I tell them what you tell me to say? In verse 12 of chapter three says I will certainly be with you and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you when you bring the people out of Egypt you will all worship God at this mountain and they are there they are here God has done all that he said and any doubt that Moses was leading uh, by God's direction uh, should have vanished at that point I mean they should have believed firmly that Moses was, was following God, that God was in control. They had seen the power and they had experienced the presence of God. They should have trusted God. Any doubt should have vanished. He had shown the sign God had. He had kept his promise and they were at this mountain to worship God. You know, when we look at, at, at chapter 19, when I read chapter 19 and the thought of experiencing God's presence the way they do here, uh, the thought of meeting God, uh, when I read this chapter, it, it causes me to tremble a little bit. And, and you know, I think uh, we should always have that sense of awe when we come into the presence of God. And it is shown in dramatic fashion here. This chapter gives us, I mean, we see the holiness of God, the uniqueness of his presence and power. And this chapter gives us a fresh perspective on what it really means to meet with God. Yes, our relationship with God is different under the new covenant through Jesus Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit. But still, he is the same God all-powerful, mighty, holy. And so this gives us a perspective, a fresh perspective. Meeting with God should be our top priority in life, and we should not approach it lightly. We should never approach it lightly or routinely. So from chapter 9, we're going to look at four lessons that we can learn what we need to do uh, to prepare to meet with God on a daily basis in our time alone with Him, but also together corporately when we gather as His church. First, we need to approach, to approach God, we need to know Him. That's requirement number one. If we're going to approach God, if we're going to be in his presence, if we're going to meet him, then we have to know him. Israel had to be ready to meet God, and one of the requirements is that they would need to know him. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 19. In the third month, on the same day of the month that the Israelites had left the land of Egypt, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. After they departed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and Israel camped there in front of this mountain. The nation of Israel was, is God's chosen people. Uh, God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. I believe that. The Bible tells us that. And this time, they were uh, his chosen people that he had delivered from bondage in Egypt. And they are camping in this wilderness. They've come together at uh, all um, two million. And again, this, the, the, the numbers are just amazing when you think about they're traveling together, they're moving together. They had all come together to meet with God. They know him. 
from their experience with him. I mean, you think about how they've experienced him through the plagues, through deliverance in the Passover, parting of the Red Sea, he's provided manna from heaven, water from a rock, all of these things. Uh, He's continued to show up and they've continued to experience. They know him from all of those miracles, all of those signs, all of those wonders and the promises that God has given and he has kept. He has proved his faithfulness. Israel is God's treasured possession and he wants to protect them. He wants to take care of them. You know, a while back, Fox News did a story about key fobs. Now, mine isn't like this. Neither one of ours is, but, uh, you know, mine's an older one, but you know, some of you you have these now where you can just have it in your pocket. You walk up to the car and it unlocks your car door, right? You're within a few feet and it unlocks it automatically. You push a button in your car and it cranks. And what it is, and you, you, you probably know this to some degree, at least, there's a computer chip in the key fob. There's a computer chip in your car. And when those two sync up, I mean, you don't have to put a key in the ignition. You just start it. You don't have to push a button or anything. The door unlocks when you touch the handle, when you get close to it or whatever, which is pretty great, especially, you know, this morning, I could have used that. I was carrying all this stuff in and finally I had to get the kids uh, uh, to hold some stuff where I could lock the door. So it's handy, but what they found in recent years, and not even just in recent years, it's just that thieves keep getting more and more creative. Uh, They've come up, thieves have these devices that can take that signal from your key fob and amplify it up to two, three hundred yards. And so, you know, whereas normally it would need to be within a couple of feet of your car for it to work, they can clone that signal and use it to unlock your car. So some of you are wanting to go out and check and see if your car is still there now, right? Now that I mentioned that, hopefully there's nobody around. Our sheriff's deputy in the parking lot is protecting your car for you, so you're, you're good. But, but it does make you wonder, how can I protect my car? Well, they have a couple of thoughts, a couple of uh, uh, pieces, a couple of tips. Uh, one of the things you can do to keep thieves from cloning your fobs, your key fob signal is, is stick it in the freezer when you get home. I don't know what that will do long term to it. Uh, another thing is you can put it in the microwave. You know, the microwave's insulated. Just make sure you remove it before you heat up your frozen pizza, okay? But you can stick it in the microwave. Something else you can do is you can wrap it in aluminum foil, and it will keep people from, from stealing your signal. Again, I don't, they can do even the type of fobs that I have. I think I'm just going to live with the risk, okay? Because I know good and well I'm going to forget that my key fob's in the microwave and we're going to have some sort of mess on our hands. But we, you know, just that article itself shows that we have a desire to protect the things that are valuable to us, don't we? And we should. I mean, you know, we work hard for the things that we have. God blesses us with things and we shouldn't, you know, treat them flippantly. We should take care of them. And, and if we have that desire for our possessions, how much more do we want to protect our families, to take care of our families, to keep them safe, uh, to keep them healthy during times like this? And that's, that's built into us. That's a part of, of the image of God, as a matter of fact. And, and, and it shows us, as much as we desire to take care of our families, of our things even, how much more does God desire to provide and pro- for and protect us? And we see that with the nation of Israel. In the midst of their continued doubt and their unbelief, God continues to provide, doesn't he? He continues to protect them. Why does he do that? Well, because he loves them. He wants to protect his children. And we see this time and time again. He preserves them. Israel is his treasured possession. They are his chosen people. He had a plan for them. He had instructions for them to follow. Why? So they could meet him and experience him 
in his presence. He wanted them to experience his presence, and they had to know know him in order to experience and follow that plan that he had for them. But just knowing God isn't enough. Knowing God is one thing. The Israelites also had to be willing to obey him, and that's the same, same is true for us. You can know God and still not obey him, You have to choose to obey him. They had to listen to God's instructions, and they had to be willing to follow him. Um, You you want to know what God wants from you? you? Some of you are praying about God's plan for your life, and yes, he's got a unique plan for you. He wants to use you in special ways. Um, you know, Timmy and I were talking about that last night. We were walking the dog after we got home last night, and we were talking about how, you know, uh, God calls us to do things. And, and, I, and I told him, I said, buddy, someday God may call you to do something you never, you never imagined. I would never imagine I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing now. But, but God calls us and he equips us. So he's got a plan for you. So I don't know necessarily what that unique plan is, but I know one thing that God wants from every one of us. Are you ready for it? He wants you to be available. He wants you to make yourself available to him. And what I mean by that is, okay, God, and one of the, one of, what I was trying, the point I was trying to make with Timmy last night is that God is probably going to call you, not probably, he is going to call you to do something where you think there's no way I can do this. And you're right, there's not. But what he wants is for you to say, God, I'm here, I'm yours, use me as you will, take me and do with me as you want. And if you can have that true heart, that attitude of submission, availability, God will use you. And he will do things in and through you that you never imagined. He wants you to be available. That's what he wants for Israel. He's he's giving them instructions. And in order for them to experience him, the first step is they've got to be willing to obey, to listen and to obey what God tells them to do. And and, and here's, here's an amazing truth. It comforts me, and I hope it does you. God doesn't expect you to have all the answers. But what he does expect is that you are willing to listen to him and obey. You know, we, we, we fear sharing the gospel because we may get a question we don't know the answer to. You know, how did God fit dinosaurs on the ark or something like that, right? We may get some theological conundrum that we can't answer. God doesn't expect you to have all the answers. Nobody does but him, okay? So just, you can rest easy in that. But what he does want is for you to be willing to listen to him and obey. And even the Israelites' obedience. And here's, here's one of the other comforts is that, you know, some people think ours is a blind faith, and there are certainly elements of our faith that, that are blind. We have to trust with, without seeing, believe without seeing. But it's also a, a grounded faith, too. It's based on knowledge, things that we know about God. And the same was true for the Israelites. They had experienced his power in dramatic ways. So their faith... Their obedience was based on knowledge they had. In verse 4, he reminds them of all that he's done, what they've seen him do. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. He talks about carrying them on eagles' wings. You know, there's, there's a couple of phrases here that just jump out. Uh, what I did to the Egyptians, what is, he, what is he talking about? What is he referring to? Well, the plagues, the destruction, his deliverance of them, the Passover, and then his defeat of them. Uh, at the Red Sea of the Egyptians, how I carried you on, on eagles' wings, how he, he, he freed them from slavery. He rescued them from Egypt and, and the exodus from Egypt. And I brought you to me, he says. And this was their deliverance where they are now. He's, car- he's brought them from slavery to this mountain to meet God. 
He is there in the presence of God. And then in verse 5 and 6, God reminds them of his covenant. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although all, all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation, these are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. If you will listen to me, if you will carefully keep my commands, my covenant, you will be my own possession. And he says, even though the earth belongs to me, God, the, the whole earth belongs to him. Yet he owns, out of all he owns, he treasures his people the most. And of course, this was true for Israel. They were his chosen people. But all of us under the new covenant who have, who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't boastful. This isn't uh, pride. This isn't arrogance. But think about this. Look at, look at the earth. Look at the sky. Look at you know, the marvels of creation. All that God created. He treasures you more than all of those things. You are his, his, his chosen possession. His prized, his precious possession. So if you're here today, you're watching at home and you're doubting your self-worth, if you're struggling with whether or not you're valuable, whether or not you're important, there it is in the Bible, you are a treasured possession of God. He loves you. Matter of fact, he loved you enough to die for you. And if you don't know him as, as Lord and Savior, he's offering you a relationship that he literally gave his life so that you could have. We are his possession, treasured possession. Key phrases here in verses five and six. They, he says, you need to keep my covenant. This is a vision of obedience. They've got to learn obedience. Same for us. My own possession, a vision of God's personal loving care. I just, I just talked about that. His, his personal, God, yes, he's holy, he's transcendent, but he's also, he's involved, he's imminent, he's personal, and he cares for his people. And the kingdom of priests and my holy nation, this is a vision of holiness and a vision of worldwide missions. They are his chosen people, and he's going to use them, and his name is going to be glorified through them. And the same should be true of us. As a matter of fact, it makes us think of, of 1 Peter 2.9. There's some similar language there applied to those under the new covenant. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. Why are we chosen? Why are we uh, given this, this title of priesthood? So that we can proclaim his name, so that we can share his name, so that he, the Lord, is our banner, right? He is exalted. Moses goes up the mountain he makes this trip up the mountain, up and down the mountain about seven times in all. But he goes up the mountain, and God says, I want you to be sure, or I want to be sure that the people are willing to obey me. So he comes back now, Moses does, and in verse 7 we read this. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people. He set, them all, set before them all of these words that the Lord had commanded him. And then all the people responded together. We will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. So um, they respond, we'll do everything the Lord said, which they don't actually end up doing. But right now in this moment, they are willing to obey. And that's, that's the most important thing for right now. All right. We see the Israelites, a lot of triumphs, a lot of failures. But in this moment, they are willing. What did I say God wants from you? He wants you to be available. He wants you to be willing. And right now, they're willing. And, and so I have to ask, for me, personally, and I think it's a good question for all of us, am I willing to obey? Whatever God asks me to do, am I willing? Go ahead, and you, you need to settle that now because in the moment, because I'm going to tell you, God, whatever God asks you to do, it's going to be God-sized. 
And it's going to be something that you can't do on your own. So if you wait until that moment to decide if you're willing to be used by God, it's going to be really hard. And chances are you're probably, you may say no. And you'll miss out on the blessing. See, God's God. He's going to do what he's going to do. His plan is perfect. He's going to accomplish his purposes for his kingdom. The question is, am I going to be a part of that? Am I willing to be a part of that? Am I willing to obey and be used by God? Um, But if we refuse to obey, we miss the blessing of knowing and experiencing God. Something else, in order to obey, we need to know God's, and to know God's will. Um, We have to know God's will to obey. And, and, and there's where listening comes in. We've got to be willing to listen. We've got to be in a position to listen. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and always will always believe you. And then Moses reported the people's words to the Lord. So he's a mediator going back and forth, which we'll touch on in a moment. Yeah, he, but God is saying, I don't want them just to be willing to obey. I want them to hear my voice. I want them to listen to me. I want them to recognize my voice. I want a relationship. That's what he's saying. And and we have the privilege of being able to hear the voice of God, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us, as we study his word, as we we talk about his word right now. The Holy Spirit can speak to your heart and you can hear him. God wants you to know him. He wants you to experience his presence And here, God is laying the groundwork with the nation of Israel for communication with his people. God is willing to reveal himself. He's willing to make himself known. The question is, are they willing to listen? Are they willing to obey? God did not give his instructions, and this is important. God does not give them instructions until he knows they're willing to obey. He knows their heart, but they had to make a commitment. They had to make themselves available. Maybe some of you here or at home, you're praying, God, I want to know your will. I want to know your will. And God's saying, okay, I want to show you my will. But first, you need to be willing to obey before I tell you what it is. And that's hard. It's tough. But, but God wants us to commit to him and to submit to him completely. And then he'll reveal himself. But we are God's chosen people. He chooses us. He reveals himself to us. We accept his invitation through faith in Jesus Christ. We come to know him. We have a relationship with him. And he reveals himself. He speaks to us. He talks to us. And and, and that's how we come to know him. It's at his initiative. He's the one that initiates the relationship. And when he speaks to us, we have to listen. And when we do, though, we grow in our knowledge of him. We grow in our, our likeness of him. And the more we know him, the more we know his heart, and the more we know what he wants us to do, and then we can obey, but we've got to commit first. We've got to submit completely, totally. God knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows if I'm holding back. I've got to say, God, I'm yours. Every bit of me, every part of me, wherever you lead, whatever you want me to do, and when I get in that position, God knows it, and he's ready to show me what he wants me to do. Now, we may still have to wait a little bit. It's all in his perfect timing, but there will be the comfort and the assurance and the peace of being in perfect fellowship with God. It can only come when we're in, to- when we're in total submission. He has a plan. We are, we, you know, the Israelites were his chosen people. And, and as, we, as we just read just a, a few moments ago in 1 Peter, we are now his chosen people, his chosen race, the royal priesthood to be used to glorify his name. And we're going to meet with God. He chooses to meet with us. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to do it daily, if we're going to do it corporately, there's something else we need to know. 
And that's to approach God, we need to prepare ourselves. We've got to be prepared. We've got to know him first, and then we've got to be prepared. Winston Churchill once said, he said, I'm prepared to meet my maker, whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. I guarantee you, God was prepared to meet Winston Churchill. You know, God knows each and every one of you. He knows you better than you know yourself. There is absolutely no doubt he's prepared to meet you. Are you prepared to meet him? That's the question. I'm not talking about, yes, when this life is over with, when you stand before him in judgment, are you prepared to meet him? The only way is to have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So there's that. But there's another side of this. You know, many of you here today, if not most of you, are prepared to meet him. Were you prepared to meet him this morning when you walked through these doors, when you turned on your screen? Are you prepared to meet him every morning or whenever you have your time alone with him? Are you just going through the motions? Are you prepared? What are you doing? What am I doing to prepare? Am I taking it serious enough to make sure that my mind is settled and focused, that my heart is pure and clean, that I've confessed, that, I, that I've, I've prepared my heart to meet with my Creator. That's a big part of what all this is about. God is preparing His people to meet Him. The Israelites had to be consecrated before the Lord. Look at verses 10 and 11. The Lord told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. The word that's used for consecrate here is is the same word that that comes from the same word uh, holy. Set apart for a specific purpose. Cleansed. uh, To be ceremonially clean. Ceremonially clean. Easy for me to say. And pure. I mean, that, that's the idea here, is that, it's, that it's, it's set apart and consecrated for God's holy purposes. One of the New Testament words that's the equivalent of this is the word sanctification, cleansing, uh, making like God, you know, being available to use, appropriate to be used. So God prepares to meet his people, and part of that is that they need to be prepared to meet him. He tells Moses, you need to consecrate them. He gives them some instructions. And what's important here. Is, is that we understand they had to be set apart before they were ready to meet with God. That's important. We have some important information. Verse 10. Again, we'll start in verse 10. And the Lord told Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai on the side of the people. Verse 12. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, Be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Specific instructions. Anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. Pretty serious consequence. So they need to listen and follow the instructions. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a pleasant way to go. No animal or man will live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up to the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, be prepared by the third day. Do not have sexual relations with women. So two things here God tells them to do. First, wash their clothes. Why wash their clothes? And does God just not like dirty laundry? What's the, what's the point here? Well, the, the, by washing their clothes... They're, they're demonstrating, I mean, it's, it's symbolic. 
God is holy. He is pure. And by washing their clothes, they, they, it, they're showing that they understand that God is holy. And, and that to meet with him requires holiness. It wasn't the actual washing of the clothes. It's symbolic that they recognize that they need to be holy. Clean clothes represents clean hearts. They're preparing their hearts. That's what he's telling Moses to do. You need to make sure you lead them to prepare their hearts to meet me. They need to be cleansed. They had to be clean, not just on the outside, more importantly, on the inside. But then he says they are to refrain from sexual activity. And this isn't, you know, not that that sexual relationship within the bonds of marriage is bad. It's not. Within the bonds of marriage, it's created by God. It's holy. It's good. But what he's doing here, the, the point is, is that he, he doesn't want them to be distracted by any personal indulgence. He doesn't want anything to distract them from being prepared to meet him, to meet God. He wants their minds, their undivided attention. You know, worship can be defined as giving God the full affection of my heart and the full attention of my mind. And he wants that. He deserves that. And that's what this is about. And there's a lesson here. Meeting with God requires personal preparation. Personal preparation. I've got to be prepared to meet God. It means not allowing anyone or anything to come between me and him, to distract me from meeting him, to be focused on him, so that I'm in a position both to listen and obey. I've got to be in tune to him. I brought with me a dog whistle. Um, we have a dog, and we had some fun with this whistle at home. Uh, you know, this whistle, it barely makes a sound. If you, can, you can hear it, but it's not. Right, it's really tough to hear. Now, this morning I grabbed it. Timmy's sitting on the couch with his dog. I blow that thing, and he, I mean, immediately, he perks up. And then he takes off, and he about tackled me. Um, he he doesn't, evidently doesn't like that sound. But where we can just barely hear it, I mean, it, it's ear-piercing to him. It's the frequency. Dogs can hear that frequency, and they are in tune to that frequency. Now, if I brought in a regular whistle with a P in it, and I, I decided to spare you, this mainly because I couldn't find one, but... but <laughs> If I did that, you would hear that, right? I mean, you could be asleep, and I'd wake everybody here and at home up with that kind of whistle. This one, you may or may not hear it. But, but Pluto, I'm telling you, Pluto, he hears it. He's in tune. He hears that frequency. And that's the picture that we need to have here, okay? There are a lot of things that can cause us to be not in tune with God, we need to be on the same wavelength, the same frequency as God. And there are things that we need to do in life to make sure we're on the right frequency. We need to submit, as we've just talked about, but we need to be consecrated. We need to make sure that if there's sin in our life that needs to be confessed, that it's confessed. That we're living in obedience to God. That we're faithful in his word. And when we come to him to meet with him, we need to make sure our hearts are clean and our minds are clean so that we will be on his frequency. So that when he speaks, it will be no doubt in our minds and in our hearts that it's him speaking. Because there's a lot of voices in our culture. There's a lot of voices that try to get our attention, pull us in different directions. And we need to, to, to get all of that junk out of the way so that we can hear God clearly. We need to be on his frequency. We need to hear him clearly. And James 4, verses 8 through 10 tells us four things that we can do to prepare our hearts to draw near to God. James chapter 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Sound familiar? Now it's closed, now it's hands. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. 
Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Four things that James points out here. Number one, clean your hands. What's that talking about? It's talking about stop sinning. All right? Is there sin that needs to be confessed? Do you need to repent of something? Purify your heart. The heart, what is the heart? When the Bible talks about the heart, what's it talking about most of the time? It's talking about your thoughts and your, your, your acts. Your, your mind is talking about your, your heart is talking about your thoughts, the inner person, who you are, what makes up you, all right? So what you think. And, it's, and so it's the realm of feelings. It's attitude. So there are things that I do, clean your hands, things that I do, also clean your heart. What are you thinking? Are you allowing immoral thoughts or, or bad attitudes, all right? Hatred, bitterness, anger, any of those things. Clean it up. James says you got to get rid of it. you got to clean it up before you meet with God. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Doesn't sound too enticing, but it reminds us appropriately of the beatitude, right? Blessed are those who mourn. It, it, he's saying take your sin seriously. Don't walk around like you're going to a funeral every day. It's not what God's saying. But when it comes to sin, we need to appreciate its effect, even as believers, the effect that can have damaging on our relationship with God. And then he says, humble yourself. And this is the heart of the matter. It goes back to what I've already said. In order to be right with God, in order to meet with God, we've got to be submissive and humble before God. We need to be prepared, consecrated, set apart for God's service, and, 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 and set apart to be used by God, and we're set apart and cleansed by Jesus Christ in his blood. We are made clean. Third, to approach God, we need to respect him. We need to respect him. How do we view God? When you think of God, how do you view God? You know, I think it depends on the circumstance. I think it depends on what we're going through. I think it depends on where we are, right? But we need to have a a, a proper perspective. Look at verse 16, Exodus 19. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. His smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So, you know, it's pretty significant how this meeting begins. It's pretty significant because it wasn't Moses who went up to God. It was God who came to him. God initiated the meeting with him just like he initiated the relationship you have with him if you're his child. Jesus came to us. He, came and be, he became man. He became sin even though he was sinless. He took on our sin. He initiates that moment where you're convicted of your sin before you accept Christ. It isn't because you chose to follow Jesus. You were responding to conviction that he initiated. He initiates the relationship we have with him. It's significant. This is a picture of salvation. God coming to man even though we were lost in sin. He comes down. He makes the contact. And we see here also an example of God's awesome, terrifying presence and his power. 
I mean, yes, God is close, but it's, it's the, it pictures the, the, the contrast of God being holy and separate, yet he is personal and close. But we see he initiates the contact, but we see thunder, we see lightning, we see a thick cloud of smoke completely enveloping Mount Sinai. Even the mountain itself shakes at the presence of God. This is the power of God this, that, that comes simply because he is present. All God's doing is making himself present. And all of these things are happening. It's the presence, the power, the glory, the awesomeness of God. He descends on the mountain in fire. The mountain itself trembles. And this is God's presence. Look at verses, verse 12, and then we'll jump to verse 21. He had told the people, put, this is you know, the instructions. Here's the reason for the instructions. Put boundaries around uh, for the people around the mountain. Be careful that you don't go up to the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. Because now we see what's happening at the mountain, right? We see all these things. Verse 21, the Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must purify themselves or the Lord will break out in anger against them. But Moses responded to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us. Put a boundary around the mountain and consider it holy. And the Lord replied to him, Go down and come back with Aaron, but the priests and the people must not break through or come up to the Lord, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. So God tells Moses, he sets limit around the mountain. We talked about that, and this is why, because he's, he's wanting to protect them. They can't handle his presence. They won't live. If they did, if they touch, if they break the rules, they die. Um, they, they, could, they could come near the mountain, but they couldn't touch the mountain. And there are two things that we can say here about setting boundaries around the mountain. First, the reason God did this was to teach the people that God was different from them and was not to be approached lightly. What does that tell us? When we come into the presence of God, we need to be prepared. We don't need to take this time lightly. When we go before God in the morning, when, before we break open his word, we don't need to take that lightly. We need to have in our minds a picture of this scene, the mountains trembling. We're about to meet with that same God. We're meeting with him now. We don't need to take it lightly. Number two, sec- second, the boundaries told them that he can only be approached on his terms. The only way you can get to, Christ is th- uh, get to God is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And you have to, if you're unexperienced, if you're going to hear his voice, you've got to be ready. Clean heart, clean hands, all of that. You know, there's a picture... Um, a few years ago, NASA came out with a picture of the Milky Way that was a 20 gigapixel photo. Um, NASA published a 1.5 gigapixel photo in January 2015, and it was pretty impressive. This is part of an even more impressive photo. German scientists, astronomers rather, created the largest picture of a uh, photo ever made, ridiculously big, 46 gigapixels. You think megapixel, you know, how many megapixel your camera is? 46 gigapixels. It's so big that it's in sections. This is just a part of it. And it took them five years to put this photo together. What they did is they took different sections, uh, 268 different sections of, of the southern sky, and they put it all together. It took five years into this ultra-high-definition 
you know, resolution, high resolution photo that you can actually, if you actually want to look at it, you have to use an interactive website to look at it. Because if you, if I showed you the whole picture, it would just be like a little jagged, it's a, a, a panoramic view. It's, it's hard to see. This is just a zoomed in por- portion of that. But the picture itself is amazing. Uh, almost uh, a little over half a decade to, to come up with this picture. And you think about that. And think about the fact that it's estimated that there are 100 billion galaxies. This is just one of them, the one that we live in. 100 billion galaxies. It took scientists five years just to put together a picture of that, which you're seeing part of, and God created it on the first day. He spoke it into existence. It took a group of people a whole lot smarter than me five years just to take a picture of it, and he created it. God is the creator. He is God. He is holy. And yes, he's loving, and he's personal, and he cares for you, but, but we should never lose sight of the fact that he is the holy creator, transcendent God. I, I think a lot of us, our biggest problem in life and walking in faith is that our view of God is too shallow. And a shallow view of God leads to a shallow life. It leads to a shallow faith. If we view God as just being a little better than ourselves or a little more powerful than ourselves, which if we're honest, sometimes we do, instead of the holy transcendent God who created the universe, all 100 billion galaxies or whatever's out there, because we don't really know all of it, then we need to have a proper view of God. If, if that's who he is, we need to have a proper view of God. That leads to a deep faith and a deep life of meaning and purpose. Um, if we make meeting with God each day our top priority, if we look at him properly, if we view him properly, if nothing's going to interfere with that, if that's the attitude that we have, then we'll have a proper respect for God and we'll experience him as he intends. Here's some tips. You're talking about meeting each day with God. Here's some tips for you. Number one, have a specific place. Do you have a place where you meet with God every day? It needs to be the same place. It needs to be special. Have a specific time. You know, I, I meet with God in the morning, but you may be better at a different time of the day. I want to start my day that way, but if you're better in the afternoon, if you're not awake in the morning, whatever, whenever you're at your best, because God deserves your best. But make it a specific time. Don't let anything interfere with it. Be prepared. Don't just go nonchalantly into the presence of God. Our hearts need time to prepare. You don't want to be legalistic, but I think you should spend at least 30 minutes a day in your quiet time with God. God, all of us can find 30 minutes for God, I would hope. Um, You may spend more, but at least that amount of time. Have a Bible. Use God's Word. Don't, you know, do it systematically. Don't just, you know, drop it open. Okay, God speak, because there's no telling what you'll, you'll open it up to. Um, have a systematic approach, and then keep a journal. Our CBR journals, we're, we're still using those. You can follow the Acts. Um, don't make it complicated. You can look at, for the promises of God in that passage. You can look for the, uh, the blessings, whatever. Don't be complicated. Just write down whatever God shows you, but keep a journal. Respect God by giving him your best, all right? And then finally, to approach God, we need to have a mediator. Moses was their mediator. He went up the mountain he met with God. He spoke for the people to God. He came down the mountain. He spoke to the people for God. He was their mediator. And the analogy is clear. Jesus is our mediator. He's the only true mediator. Look at 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 
There's one God and one mediator between God and human, humanity, Christ Jesus himself human. He's our mediator. And, and again, the complexity. God is holy. He's separate. He's transcendent, as we've established, but he's also imminent. He's present. He's personal. He's relational. And so how do we approach this transcendent God? Well, we do it through Christ. He's our mediator. Uh, he speaks on our behalf. He reveals himself. He reveals God to us. And if we only see the God of Mount Sinai, holy, transcendent, separate, frightening, then we'll never have a personal relationship with him. But if we only have the imminent, the personal, uh, the relational, loving aspect view of God, which he is love, then our view of God will be wimpy and shallow. We have to have a balance of both. And that's what God is teaching them here through Moses as the mediator, but also through his presence and their experience here. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about Mount Sinai. It talks about, um, you know, the author gives us a picture, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, storm, all of those things. Uh, and I'm just going to walk through it because we're running out of time. But um, we have a, we come to God and he is still that same God, but our relationship is different. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, verse 22, myriads of angels in festive gathering to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God, who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. He is our mediator, the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Calvin, Calvin Whitman said this. He makes this distinction. He said, we come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. At Mount Zion, God's transcendence and eminence are united through the work of Jesus Christ. We don't come to dark clouds, thunder, and lightning, which causes us to tremble with fear. We come to Jesus who gives us a means to praise God and to have a personal relationship with him. We are able to approach the unapproachable God. You know, there's studies, plenty of studies that have been done on stress and what it causes in our lives, and I've referred to some of them, and, and I think it relates to this. Because one of the greatest stressors in our lives is, causes of stress rather, is busyness. There have been a couple of studies done about busyness and what it does and, and how it affects us. Uh, Susan Coven practices internal medicine, or, or at least did at Boston, I believe still does at, at Boston, Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, she says, in the past few years, following her study, she said, I've observed the epidemic of sorts. Patient after patient suffering from the same condition. The symptoms of this condition include fatigue and irritability. She goes on to list a number of things. And she says there's no x-rays, no blood tests, diagnostics of this condition. But it's easy to recognize the condition is excessive busyness. Notice she doesn't say the problem is stress. She says it's busyness. Busyness. We filled our lives up with so much stuff we don't have time for anything else, anything important. And there are two types of busyness. That, that come out of another study. And one is one you can't control. Like if you are born into poverty and you have to work tirelessly to make a living, or if, you know you have to have three jobs to support your family, you're busy because you have to be. And it's not healthy, it's not good for you, but you have to be. But, but, but more harmful is the busyness that we create ourselves. The busyness that we choose. We fill up our schedules. You know, for years and years and years, with advances in technology, we've been told that these things will make our lives easier, right? Devices. We'll have more time for other stuff, but now what do we do? We spend all our time on our devices. We just fill it up with other things. 
we fill our lives up with more and more and more stuff, and it leads to stress, it leads to anxiety, it leads to, to blood pressure issues, it leads to all sorts of health problems, depression, separation, uh, all of these things. Busyness, the damage of busyness, we see it everywhere. And this, unfortunately, for most of us, is busyness that we could control if we chose to, but we keep filling up our lives. In an article titled The Disease of Busy, Being Busy, so since the 1950s, we've had so many new technological innovations that we thought or were promised would make our lives easier, faster, simpler. Yet, we have no more free or leisurely time today than we did decades ago. For some of us, the lines between work and home are so blurred, we can't tell the difference, especially out of necessity having to work at home, right? Some of it we can't control, but some of it we can the fact of the matter is, is we've created a mess in our lives. And maybe one of the blessings of this pandemic is, is it forced us, at least for a little while, to cut out some of the busyness and to focus on what matters. We feel every minute, every hour, every day, like our hearts might stop if, or the world might come to an end if we didn't do this next thing. But I just want to leave you with the truth. It gets my attention, and, 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 and hopefully it will yours. It's something that, that through this that I, I've been praying through and, and asking God to analyze in my life. It's led me to make a few changes. For one thing, I, I'll leave the house without my phone nowadays. <gasps> I know the kids are just as shocked. But, but it, it occurs to me, this truth, and it, just let it, let it sink in. Our schedules and our bank accounts are the best indicators of what's most important to us. It's true. True for churches, too. If spending time with God is important, then we'll make time for it. If spending time with our family is important, we'll make time, and we'll remove some of that busyness. We've got to make time for God. We have to. He deserves it. And not only does he deserve the time, he deserves our best. We shouldn't just carve out an hour, an hour and a half or whatever, two hours on Sunday mornings, 30 minutes every day. We should carve out time to prepare for that time too. We need to approach God properly, the way he deserves. Yes, he's personal, he's loving, he's caring, but he's God. And he's here with us today. The same God who causes the mountains to tremble is in our midst. Are you prepared to meet God? Do you know him personally? If not, you can through a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Are you prepared? Were you prepared to meet him today when you got here? Or did you just come because it was Sunday? I'm glad you did. Don't get me wrong. But were you prepared? Tomorrow morning when you wake up, are you going to be prepared? Are you going to carve out time for him? Let's just spend a few moments talking to our mighty, holy God and asking him to help us be prepared. Father, thank you for what you've done to make it possible for us to meet with you. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for giving your life so that we, we could be free from sin, forgiven of sin. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today or at home, wherever they are worshiping with us, if they don't know you, if they haven't accepted salvation, that they would accept that now. All they have to do is recognize that like all of us, they have sinned, they have committed wrongdoing, fallen short of your glory but also that you, Jesus, you came and took on their sin. You died on the cross. 
and were raised from the dead three days later so that their sin could be forgiven. You paid the price that they cannot pay, and all they have to do is invite you into their lives and ask for forgiveness of sin. And they can receive salvation. For those of us who know you, God, will we prepared to meet you today? Or did we just kind of roll in here because it was Sunday or maybe we felt by accident, maybe some, but you are a God that's intentional. And you had a specific plan and a purpose and intent in meeting with us today. And I fear that maybe some of us missed it because we weren't prepared. So I pray, Lord, that we would just allow you, Holy Spirit, to search our hearts. Are we making time for you every day? Are we making the most of that time? Are we giving you our best? Or are we just giving you a spot on our schedule? Are we filling our lives with things that we shouldn't, even good things that are taking your place? Are we prepared to meet with you and to commune with you daily? If not, what is it that we need to do? Do we need to clean our hearts, our hands? Is there sin that needs to be confessed? Is it busyness that needs to be cleared? Is it a relationship with you that needs to be strengthened through studying your word and and making a part of who we are and and feeding on it and meditating on it? Is it uh, just talking to you and having a relationship with you? Is it surrounding ourselves with people that will encourage us and help us grow? Is it is it any number of things? Is it our view of you? Uh, do we do we not have an appropriate view of who you are and the balance of God, holy, transcendent, and personal, loving, and caring, and relational? That only comes with time and growth and knowledge of you. So Lord, whatever it is that we need to do, however we need to respond, I pray that we would. May we never waste another opportunity to meet with you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.